God, we're all here, and I got stuck behind some slow pokes who aren't, who aren't confident enough in their four-wheel drive, and that's why I was late, but <laughs> probably they were wiser than I. <laughs> God probably spared me by slowing me down. Uh, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, I thought I'd share with you what we've been going over uh, in our church uh, in the last couple weeks. And uh, we've been in Luke chapter, the Luke chapter 1 and 2 for the last, I guess, two months now, almost. And uh, I, I found this ending to the book, uh, to the chapter uh, 2 of Luke, to be so wondrous that I, I felt like I, I should share it with you. I felt like that was what the Lord had for us tonight. Um, if you'll take uh, a look with me, we'll we'll read this first and then make a few extensive <laughs> comments about it. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 20. And the child, that, that is Jesus, grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You ever wondered about that verse? How is it that Jesus, we know who Jesus is. Jesus is God, right? I mean, this is a very plain teaching throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's even stated explicitly in Titus 2. Um, Jesus is God, but yet how could Jesus be God and yet verse 52 be true? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And how is it possible that, that, that Luke managed to cram two verses like this into one passage? In verse 40, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Of course the grace of God was upon him. How could he grow in wisdom if he is God? How is this possible? This is a fascinating passage. To understand what Luke is getting at, though, we really have to understand the entire introduction to the book of Luke. And you could, you could say that the introduction to the book of Luke is the first couple of verses in chapter 1, and that certainly is an introduction. But if you, if you see the first, if you look at the first two chapters, you see the uh, introduction to the ministry, the, the first several accounts, the, the comp compilation of, of stories that Luke is putting together, the true accounts of Christ. 
um, that lead up to his, his, uh, his ministry. In chapter 3, he begins with the, with the baptism of Jesus at, at the age of 30 and all of that. That starts in chapter 3, and we go on to the ministry of Christ. So these first accounts in the first two chapters are his introduction to who Jesus is and how he came, right? And so to understand how he concludes this introductory, uh, uh, these introductory accounts, uh, we must first understand what he's been, how he's been building this this whole time. But I think I'll give you a kind of an idea of what I think we'll find here, what Luke is expressing to us, and that is that Jesus is a perfect man. He's a perfect man. Now, both of those words are very important. Jesus is perfect, and he is a man. You say, well, I thought he was God. Yes, he is God. What is he, half God and half man? No. <laughs> he couldn't stop being God. He's God. That's who he is. That's his being. He took on humanity, and he is human. As much as it is true, anything else is true, it is true that Jesus is human, but it also is true that Jesus is God. You say, all right, so how could he be God and man? I don't know. He's God. He can do stuff like that. But, uh, but he can do it. And this is clear in this passage. But let's, let's follow what Luke has been, been building to. Um, in, in Luke chapter 1, we begin the accounts of Christ, right? And we, what do we, where do we begin? We begin in the temple, right? We begin with Zechariah in the temple, serving God. And he, he's visited by the angel Gabriel. And his instinct is not to believe it. You see here the beginning of what Luke is building to, and that is the humiliation of Christ, uh, meaning that he humbled himself. Philippians uh, chapter 2, I'll read this very quickly just to remind us of it. I should have put a little marker in my Bible so I could get to it before I ran out of things to say. Um, Philippians chapter 2, um, let this mind be in you, verse 5, he says, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, meaning he was equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on upon him the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. Paul here is encouraging the, the Christians in Philippi to humble themselves as Christ humbled himself. And he does not begin by giving us a description of the cross. That's not where the humiliation of Christ begins. It begins at his taking on the form of a servant. And you see all the way through Luke chapter 1 and 2, all of this irony. It's all the opposite of what you would expect. Nothing is the way that you'd expect it to be when God himself takes on humanity. Not at all. Like You would expect that you would, you would present this to the priests in Israel and they would all accept it. But Luke gives us the first account of a priest in the temple, and his instinct is, no, I can't, I can't accept this. Of course, he does eventually uh, believe, but his first instinct is not to accept it. Then you go to this little virgin girl in Nazareth, who, um, for them, you came of age, you were an adult when you hit the age of 13. So for her to still be betrothed and not married means that she had to be 13 or, or very close to the age of 13. So 
maybe a little younger, maybe a little older. So you have this little virgin girl who's not even married in a obscure place that's not even very important, Nazareth. And uh, she's visited and she believes. That's the one who God chose. He says, all right, Jesus is coming to earth. He's going to take on humanity. God is coming in flesh and I'm choosing to do it in the most humiliating way possible. I'm choosing to humble myself at, to the highest degree. When he is born, who is it that, that, uh, that goes out and are the first messengers of the, of the Messiah's birth, besides, of course, the angels? Well, it's the shepherds. The angels don't go to a bunch of priests. They go to a bunch of shepherds. I mean, all of this is just irony upon irony. This is not what you'd expect. He, he's laid in a manger. You'd think that, you know, God coming to earth, he's going to be coming in, you know, probably in Caesar's palace in Rome, you know, and he's probably going to come with a, with a white robe and, and riding a white horse and out of his mouth is going to come a, a sharp sword. Well, that's in the future, sure. But this coming, he chooses humiliation. He chooses to humble himself. He didn't have to come as a baby, but he came as every man does as a baby. He, he came and was laid not in the palace. Uh, what I don't know what they lay babies in in the palace. Maybe a really a gold crib or something. I don't know. But it wasn't that. It was a manger, right? And so we're seeing that Luke is painting us a picture of the humiliation of Christ. How Christ chose to come was humbling. He chose to humble himself. He chose, though he, though it's a, that, that phrase in Philippians that he didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped or, or something to rob. It, it's, it literally means that he didn't see that he needed to hang on to it. Meaning, not that his being would stop being God, but rather his equality with the Father in glory was not something he held on to. He humbled himself, laying aside the glory of heaven and coming at the, in the most humble way possible, truly taking on humanity. This is just hard to understand. But that's why I think Luke is giving it to us, because it's just so wondrous. He comes to the temple for the first time. I mean, this has to be, you know, Theophilus, who's reading this letter, the first, the first person to read the letter. He's got to be thinking, okay, this is going to be good, right? I mean, even the Jewish people must have thought this is going to be good. If Malachi chapter 3 says, The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, but who may abide the day of his coming? Because he's going to purify the sons of Levi, right? And here comes the Lord to his temple. He's a little infant baby, and Mary and Joseph are bringing him in to present him, and, and there's not a single priest that recognizes who he is. At least we're not told about one. Um, of course, Zechariah, I'm sure, recognizes him, but Zechariah is probably put out of doing any serious service as a priest because the ones in charge of the priests are the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. So Zechariah is going around telling everybody that he saw an angel, and that's, uh, that's who uh, told him that his, his son's name should be John. Uh, he's probably not in good favor with the leaders of the priests anymore. At any rate... Here comes Jesus into the temple, and who is it that picks him up and prophesies about who he is? We don't know. He's, his name is Simeon, but we don't know much about him at all, except that he was waiting for the Messiah. He's of those who were waiting for the Messiah in Israel. He picks up Jesus, and he says, hey, this child is set for the fall 
and the rise of many. <laughs> like, that's not what, what, what we expected. The Messiah is here for the rising of Israel. But he says, no, 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 it's going to be, well, some people are going to rise <laughs> as a result of the Messiah. He's going to be kind of the dividing line between those who fall and those who rise. And then he says, he's going to be a sign that's going to be spoken against. He's going to be a divisive figure that people are going to hate. There's going to be a lot of people that hate the Messiah. What? This is just not what you'd expect. Christ is coming in the most humble way possible. And then we come uh, to the second account of Christ's childhood that Luke gives us. He gives us only two accounts of his childhood. He, he gives us the birth, of course. But then once Jesus is born, there's only two accounts of his childhood, and both of them take place in the temple. It's the, the symmetry uh, of, this, of these first two chapters is just amazing. I mean, he starts, where did he start? In the temple with Zechariah. And Zechariah is unbelieving. Now he eventually becomes a believer. But then he goes out of the temple and he goes up to Nazareth. He goes down to the hill country of Judea. Then he goes over to Bethlehem. But as soon as he can, he brings the story back to Jerusalem because that's the important center of worship and uh, of, the, of the one true God in Israel. So he brings the story back to Jerusalem. In fact, of the 30 years of Christ's life before he be comes on the scene as, uh, uh, and begins his ministry, um, there's many, many stories that I'm sure Luke could have included here. But he only includes two. Of the 12 years of Christ's childhood, because, of course, he would be considered an adult at 13, of the 12 years of his childhood, he could have included many accounts, but he only included two. He starts at the beginning and starts at the, and then goes to the end of his childhood uh, as an infant and then as 12 years old, right before he becomes a man in our society. And he gives us two accounts in the temple. Now, we know Jesus spent, you know, at least another six months or so in Bethlehem as a baby because the wise men didn't show up until probably about six months, maybe a year or more after Jesus was born and he was still in Bethlehem. And then we know after that they went to Egypt and he was probably there for six months to a year or so until Herod died. And and then they went to Nazareth and, he, you know, he was in Nazareth all the way up for the rest of his childhood, the next 11 or 10 or 11 years. So there's there's so much other, I mean, he spent most of his time in other places, but yet Luke brings us to these two accounts in the temple because he wants to get, I think, to what he states in the in this passage that we just read. So look at, look with me, if you would, at verse 40, and we'll, we'll just kind of contemplate this. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The child waxed strong in spirit. That's a, that's a becoming. Do you know that Jesus limited himself in order to experience true humanity? I said before that he was the perfect man. Both of those things are absolutely essential. Jesus was perfect. He had to be perfect. If he was not perfect, if he was not without sin, then he couldn't die for our sins. He had to be sinless or else he'd have to die for his own sin. There were many sons of David who lived before and none of them could be the Messiah because they could not die for the sins of the world. They could not take away the sins of, the, of, their, of God's people. David himself could not die for the sins of God's people. He rescued them. He saved them in a military fashion many times, but he could not save them from their sins. 
because he was a sinner. Solomon couldn't save the people from their sins because he was a sinner. Jesus had to be perfect if he was going to save his people from their sins, which is, of course, what the name Jesus means, Jehovah saves. So he had to be perfect. We know this, and we'll see uh, in just a moment a, a passage in the book of Hebrews. But he also had to truly be a man. You know, if, if, if it wasn't required that a man die for the sins of man, then an angel could have just come. I mean, just send the angel Gabriel, and he could take care of it, right? Or, or send uh, Michael the archangel, and he could take care of it. That wouldn't work, because it's not just good enough to be perfect. He had to be a perfect man. And, and look what it says in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 4 and 5 tells us some really fascinating things about the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5 I'll take you to first, and then we'll kind of go backwards to Hebrews chapter 4. In chapter 5 of Hebrews verse, um, verse 8, it says this, Though he were a son. Now this is, this is just a really packed um, statement because... Typically, in this time, the, the Jewish people, they wouldn't really use the word son for their infant son. I mean, they might. They might say the firstborn son or whatever. But they usually would use the word son when he became 13. That was when he became uh, a man. And now he's really a son of the father. He's, he's able to now take over the father's business and He's now equal with the father. He has all the authority of the father and all of that now passes on to the son. In fact, the word son often was used uh, to, to refer to something that was equal, uh, not inferior, was equal. Um, Barnabas. Barnabas, he was a consoler. He was a very, he, he helped uh, bring people in uh, who were ostracized, you know. And so they called him, he, that wasn't his name originally, but they called him Barnabas, which means son of consolation, meaning Barnabas was equal to consolation. He was the same as, right? Um, here it says, though he were a son, right? He was, he was equal to the father. Though he were the son of God, yet learned he obedience. Now, the Jews, when, when someone turns 13, even today, when a Jewish boy turns 13, they have what's called a bar mitzvah, which means bar, again, like Barnabas, bar, son, bar mitzvah, son of the law. That is, he's an adult now. He has to answer to God for himself for following the law of God. Before that, it was his parents that had to ensure that he was following the law of God. Now, he's a son of the law himself. He has to answer to that himself. Here, it says, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That means Jesus came to earth. He is God, but he's also a perfect man. He's a perfect man. Every perfect man obeys the Father. Now, Jesus is God, but he's going to now obey the Father because he's man, and he's a perfect man. He wouldn't be a perfect man if he didn't submit to the, to the Father. Now, it's not that Jesus ever disagreed with the father but he had to be a perfect man which shows he had to submit to the father's leading he learned obedience by the things which he suffered meaning that jesus had to suffer like a man suffers uh, go back and we'll we'll develop this in in chapter 4 verse uh, verse 14 seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens 
Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, Jesus had to suffer like a man. He had, to, he had to endure the suffering that it is to be a human in order to come out and be the perfect human. You know, it's like, it's like when, we, <laughs> when we sin and we say, well, you know, I shouldn't have said that. But, but, you know, it's just because of all the things I had going on in my life. It's just because of all the stress I had going on, you know. And my response to myself when I say that, because I do it, is, um, no, that's not a good excuse. Jesus suffered all of those things as well, yet without sin. Jesus suffered actually, truly as a man. And in order for Jesus to suffer as a man, he had to humble himself and become obedient even to his earthly parents. He, I mean, can you imagine the humiliation it is for God? We can't really imagine, but we could, uh, we could have the exercise of attempting to imagine what it's like for God, the creator of all things, all-knowing, all-powerful, to limit himself to the form of a baby? I mean, that's humiliation of all humiliation. It goes from the highest to the absolute lowest. I mean, for him to cry for, for milk when he's hungry? I mean, he's God. He doesn't need things, but now he's put himself into a place and caused himself to have need. That's, that's just mind-blowing that he would do this, that he would allow himself to grow as a child, to grow in, in knowledge like a child has to grow in knowledge. You know what's one of the struggles of being a child? Not knowing things. <laughs> the struggle of being an adult is thinking you know things, right? <laughs> the struggle of being a child is not knowing anything. Jesus limited his own knowledge. Now, we know that he limited his own knowledge because in Matthew chapter 24, he says that he doesn't know the time of his coming. Well, why is that? Because he was told by the Father not to know it. So he limited his access to his own knowledge. It's not that he lost some of his omniscience as God. It's that he chose to set it aside and did not access that in order to truly experience humanity. This is just hard to understand. But Luke is trying to help us understand it by giving us the humiliation of Christ. Now, the fact that Christ is perfect and a man have to go together. Because if he's not really suffering as a man, then how could you say that he was a perfect man? He didn't really experience any of the things that men have to experience. So how could he, he, he then suffer for our sins if he's perfect, but he's really more like an angel? He never actually had to experience humanity. He had to be a man. He had to be perfect, but he had to truly experience humanity. Uh, and so he did both of those things. He didn't lay aside his deity. He laid aside the glory that he has the right to in, in deity. We see that in John chapter 17. Just for sake of time, we won't go to all these places and, and substantiate all of these things. But John chapter 17, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer as he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, um, he, he asks the Father to glorify him with the, with the glory he had before, before creation. He says, I'm, I'm getting ready to shed this, uh, this body and, and take on a glorified human body. 
and uh, I'm going back to the glory that I had with you uh, in heaven. So this is just a fascinating thought. Let, let's follow Luke's idea here. And, and with that, let's add one more concept before we do. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, if I get there before you, I'm just going to start reading. But if you want to get there, um, uh, good, good for you. First <laughs> uh, Peter chapter two, and uh, in the end of the of the chapter, Peter here is trying to express to Christians um, that um, are suffering for for doing right if they preach the gospel, if they even attend a church service, they could be thrown in jail. And Peter is saying, listen, it's okay to suffer as long as you're suffering for doing what's right. Like, if you're suffering for doing wrong, that's a problem, okay? If you deserve to go to jail, there's a whole other issue. But if you are doing what is right, that's a glorious thing to suffer for Christ. In verse 21, he continues this argument. He says, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Meaning, that though the primary cause of Christ being the perfect man was that he would die on the cross and save us from our sins. Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save the lost. This was his primary purpose. No question about that. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have secondary purposes as well. And there's no doubt that a secondary purpose to Christ's coming was this, to leave us an example that we should follow in his steps. Look what it says in verse 22. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus, not only is the perfect man, because only a perfect man could die on the cross for our sins and offer us salvation, but he's also the perfect man to be an example to us about what it means to be a perfect human being. <laughs> because we have no other examples. <laughs> we can't look around at anyone else. There was a time when maybe we thought our mom or dad fit that example, but we found that out pretty quickly that that wasn't the case, right? We all understand this, and so Christ gives us the example. Now, let's watch his example. Uh, the perfection of Christ is also a theme in Luke chapter 2. He's not just trying to tell us that Christ humbled himself. He's reminding us that though he humbled himself and was truly a man, he was a perfect man. We know this um, because as soon as Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph, he describes their faithfulness to God during the first 12 years of his life to show that as parents, they were bringing their child along to follow the law of God, just like any good Israelite parents would do causing their child until he's 13 to follow the law of God, and then at 13 he's to follow uh, it himself. Uh, we see this because as soon as he's born, 40 days afterwards, here he is in the temple, and uh, they're bringing him in. They don't have enough money for, for, a, sh for a, a sheep to, to offer um, and sacrifice for their firstborn son, so instead they bring the two turtle doves or two young pigeons, and, uh, and they're just being faithful to God. They're, they're, and, and Luke gives us this again. Look at verse 40 in our text. Now we're going to finally get to the text. It's a long introduction, I know. Uh, verse 40, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The father chose to, to direct the son to grow, to experience humanity as a baby, 
and as an infant, and as a toddler, and to grow. But as he grew, he waxed strong in spirit, filled with the wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Again, a statement about the faithfulness of his parents every year. He could have just said, his parents went to Jerusalem at the feast of Passover when he was 12 years old. He could have just said that. But Luke wants us to know that just because I'm jumping to 12 doesn't mean that they didn't go all the other all the other years. Every year they were at Passover. Now this is very important because the Jewish men were required to go to three uh, to to three um, feasts per year. There was there was the feast of Passover, there was the feast of uh, first fruits or the, or the Pentecost, and then there was the feast of Tabernacles. They were required to go to these. The the women weren't necessarily required to, uh, but Mary goes with them uh, to to the feast of Passover, and this is quite a quite a journey from Nazareth. You can imagine that there's probably many uh, Israelites in Naz- Nazareth who don't go to the feast of Passover like they're supposed to, um, but they are faithful and go apparently with a group of family members, and it says that in verse forty two. Uh, verse 43, and when they had fulfilled the days. Now, that's an important statement because at the Feast of Passover, you have the Feast of Passover, and then you have a week of unleavened bread, so a total of eight days. And they didn't just come for the Feast of Passover and book it out of there, you know, <laughs> kind of like those people who come who come for, for the, uh, they come late to church and then leave as soon as it's all over. Let me get out of here real quick before I have to talk to somebody, you know. <laughs> they they came and they're like, all right, let's stay for the whole thing. We're we're here for the for the long run. You know, they're very faithful people. They come for the whole um, days of unleavened bread, and then it says, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. You say, well, how could they possibly not have known? Well, first of all, he's Jesus. They've never had to check up on him before, right? I mean, he's perfect. You know, maybe they have, we know that Jesus had sons, uh, uh, brothers, uh, Mary and Joseph had other sons. That's why Jesus is called Mary's firstborn son. Otherwise, it'd just be called his son, her son. Um, but, uh, and we know from Mark chapter 6 that he had brothers and sisters. So maybe some of them are born by now, 12 years after Jesus is born. We don't know. <laughs> but uh, uh, they they recognize that he doesn't need the attention the others do. <laughs> Uh, but also, in these caravans, they probably would have put um, women and children sort of up at the front, and the men would have been at the back. The children probably would have headed up the caravan, and then you got the women and then the, the men. And the reason is that way the men can kind of keep an eye and make sure people aren't falling by the wayside or something like that. And that's usually how they went. So they probably were separated from all the children anyway. And uh, as they're going, they it says that they get a day a day's journey out. It says this. Uh, they returned, Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, verse 44, but they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. Uh, I imagine that uh, that evening, they're getting ready to, you know, hunker down for the night. It's probably a two or three, maybe even four-day journey, depends on how fast they go, from from uh, from Jerusalem up to Nazareth, because they wouldn't travel through Samaria, so they had to go the long way around. Um, and so uh, now it's the evening, and they're probably gathering their children together, maybe in one tent or in a couple tents, I don't know. Um, and as they gather their children together, 
they realize there's one missing. It's Jesus. And so they look all throughout uh, all of their kinsfolk's tents and acquaintance and can't find him. So verse 45, and they found him not, and they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him, meaning they've been a day out, now they travel back a day, and now you have the third day looking for him. And after three days, they find him. <laughs> and where is he? He's in the temple. <laughs> now this is his temple, right? He is God. This is, this is a temple built for the worship of him. <laughs> this is quite amazing. He's in his temple, <laughs> his own temple. In fact, that's what Malachi chapter 3 says. The Lord will come to his temple. They find him in his temple, in the temple, it says here. But it's his, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now, this is what they would do um, commonly in Jerusalem, especially in the courts of the temple, in different courts. Uh, teachers would come in, uh, doctors, uh, professors of the law, and lawyers um, of the Old Testament law. And they would come in and they would sit sit down and, and uh, you know, students would gather around at their feet and they would sort of sit at the, at the teacher's feet and, and they would, the teacher would teach something and it would be a, a back and forth response sort of a teaching. He would teach something and then he would uh, allow someone to ask a question and he would answer the question. He'd allow another student to ask a question. He'd answer the question. This is how they would teach. And so <laughs> Jesus, Jesus apparently for three days has been doing the same thing. He goes and he finds a teacher and he sits at his feet and, and listens to his teaching. And then he asks some questions. Uh, but you can imagine that Jesus knows all the answers to the questions he's asking. So this is just wonderful. Jesus, I think here, is telling us something just mind-blowing. And that is, uh, Luke is telling us something about Jesus. But I think Jesus understands, of course, that it's going to be written down by Luke later. It, that is, that he is... Not only the perfect man so he can die on the cross for our sins, but he's the perfect man to give us an example. And a perfect man loves to study and ask questions and think about and meditate on the word of God. And so Jesus is no exception. It's his word. He loves it. He loves talking about it. He loves sitting around asking questions about it, even though he knows the answers. And he enjoys studying his own word. <laughs> it's just so wonderful. The fact that he would ask questions, that tells me that not only is he doing what every young man should do, what every, every Christian, every perfect man should do, but he's also doing something that he no doubt enjoys doing. He seems to be so caught up in it that he, he just doesn't have time to go back home. <laughs> I'm just enjoying this so much. This is something that is really peculiar about every Christian. And this is, a, I think, a very important point, because in the very same passage that we read earlier, First uh, Peter chapter 2, at the beginning of the pastor, passage, Peter makes a statement to those same Christians about how they're very strange. <laughs> they're peculiar people, he says in First Peter chapter 2. He says, one of the things that makes you peculiar is this. He says, verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He says, if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, you are hungry for the milk of the word. 
Now, this is not, you know, you, you, you may be familiar with the, with the illustration that Paul uses to the Corinthians. And he says, hey, look, when it, I should be feeding you with meat, you guys are drinking milk because you haven't grown. This is not the same illustration. This is Peter. <laughs> Here he's just saying every Christian is this way. Every Christian, in a sense, is like a baby who's hungry for milk. And this is one of the evidences. As a matter of fact, I would say it's one of the chief evidences that you are truly a Christian is that you love to be fed the Word of God. And if you sit through preaching and find it very difficult to, to enjoy, then either the preaching isn't actually feeding the Word of God. I've been in <laughs> sermons like that. Um, or, or maybe you need to ask God to help you develop the desire that you should, because here's what being a Christian is. Christianity begins when someone has faith in the gospel, right? The gospel, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We're sinners. He took our place. But not just that they believe that the gospel is true. You know, demons believe that the gospel is true. But they, they believe the gospel is true to such an extent that it produces in their heart something the Bible refers to often. It's called repentance. Now, we often think of repentance in the form of penance. Like repentance is some work that we do. You know, we have to go out and accomplish something. And then we say if repentance is associated with salvation, then we have to work for our salvation. Well, that's just not true. The Bible doesn't re associate repentance with penance. Penance is something Christians, if you can call them Christians, came up with uh, many years later um, and uh, became incorporated, you know, into the Catholic Church. In the Bible, repentance is the thing that faith produces that shows that your faith is not just a just a oh I, I think so sort of a thing it's a i'm so confident that i'm a sinner and my sin deserves eternal judgment and that jesus in love for my soul died to take my sin i'm so confident of that i believe that to such an extent that i have chosen it has produced in my heart a desire to live like christ to to follow him. Now, that doesn't mean we always are successful at that. All of us who are Christians understand how much we fail at that, at accomplishing that desire. But the, the, the desire to follow Christ instead of to live for myself, that is the thing called repentance. It's a, it's a turning. It's a change of mind. That's the word, what the word repentance means. I've changed my mind. I've decided that my life is for something else now. It's for Christ. And when faith in the gospel brings us to the point of repentance, choosing to follow Christ, that's a saved individual. Uh, they usually, a lot of times, that's when someone prays a prayer and asks Jesus to be the Lord of their life, or maybe it's uh, maybe you have a different testimony, but that's the thing that took place that brought about salvation. Faith brings a desire to follow Christ. That's salvation. Now, when someone becomes a Christian, they have a desire to follow Christ. If they have no desire to follow Christ, they're not a Christian because that's required. That doesn't mean they're always successful, like we said, but they have a desire to. And if a Christian is a person who believes the gospel to such an extent that they desire to follow Christ, how are they going to follow Christ? Well, they've got to know the Bible. <laughs> so that's why a Christian who desires to follow Christ when they realize that the Bible is the way in which Christ tells us how we are to follow him, they find it very appealing. They love it. 
they cry out for it because they've chosen to follow Christ and they don't know how to do it. <laughs> and one of the greatest ways in which the Bible tells us how to follow Christ is by seeing the example of Christ himself. Now, of course, we can see how to follow Christ in the Old Testament and in other passages, but the Gospels is certainly the chief way, by seeing the example of Christ. So we come back to our text and see his love for the scriptures. That should be the heart of every Christian. If you just have this appetite to learn the Bible, that's a really good reason to to be confident in your salvation, <laughs> because that is the sign of a true Christian. It's maybe the, the greatest, it's certainly of the greatest signs of your true faith in Christ, your true desire to follow him, because you desire his word. This is why, by the way, I, I, I like to preach the way that I do, because I know that I'm preaching to Christians. I like to just explain the Bible to people, because I know that Christians are hungry for that. They just are hungry to learn the scriptures. And this is just wonderful. Here's Jesus as the perfect man. He's hungry for his own word, even though he knows it better than anyone he can ask questions about. He's asking questions. And look what it says next in verse 47. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. That word answers just, you know, it doesn't mean that they were asking him questions. It just means his responses. So he would ask a question. Uh, to the teacher after the teacher had taught whatever he was teaching. The teacher would give an answer, or <laughs> maybe you'd attempt to give an answer. <laughs> I'm not sure how well each teacher did. Uh, I'm sure he went from teacher to teacher. Eventually, after three days, there's a whole group of the teachers trying to answer his questions. <laughs> and they're all astonished that when they give an answer, Jesus responds and demonstrates that he knows more about the answer to the question than they did. <laughs> but yet he's learning obedience, submitting to teachers who don't know as much as he does because he's a perfect man. So as a perfect man, he's submitting and following and learning the scriptures even though he already knows them. This is just, if your head is spinning, good. This is one of those sermons I, I, uh, I like to say that there's two types of sermons. There's swimming pool sermons and, and hot tub sermons. A swimming pool, you get in a swimming pool, you're not supposed to be floating around. You're supposed to be swimming. You're supposed to be doing something, right? If you want to do nothing, then you go get in a hot tub, right? That's where you just sit and soak it in, right? <laughs> or at least that's my opinion. I don't know about you. Um, this, is a, this is a hot tub sermon. <laughs> some sermons are all about, well, you know, here's the things that God is commanding us to do. There's some of that cer certainly in here. But this is one of those sermons where you just kind of need to sit back and soak it all in. Like, look at who Jesus is. And what he's demonstrating to us. So in verse 47, it says, All that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Wow. Verse 48, And they saw him, and they were amazed. Uh, when they saw him, they were amazed. Now, you, you got to understand a little bit of the frustration of his mom. I mean, I've never had a single problem, never had to worry one time, never had one bit of sorrow from you, Jesus. And now, for the last three days, I'm scared to death that I just lost the Son of God. Okay, I just, I just killed the Messiah. I don't know what happened to him. He's probably fallen among thieves or something. I failed. The one thing, the greatest thing that I've ever had been given to do and any woman's ever been given to do, and I just failed. And so she's very distraught. And so she comes in and she says, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. She's like... Don't you realize that you caused me sorrow? Now, 
remember what Mary was just told a few verses previous by Simeon, that a sword will pierce through your own heart also? I mean, Mary was told that because of her love for Jesus, it was going to end up causing her sorrow. Not that she did anything wrong in loving Jesus, but just that Jesus's life was not going to be one that's going to always be, bring her happiness. His life was going to sometimes bring her sorrow. And here's the first bit of sorrow that she experiences. She says, you've caused me sorrow. We've sought, sought you sorrowing for three days. And he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? Now that word business actually is, isn't in the text. The text, the Greek just says, I must be about my father's blank, right? And you fill it in, my father's thing, my father's stuff, my father's, and actually it's the word, the, the word about is the word in. So some people have guessed that he's saying you were seeking for me. Didn't you think I would be in my father's, and then they'd say house. And then in the King James translation, they say, well, we're just going to make it a little more broad and just say about my father's business, since we don't really know exactly the point that he was making. Um, he's just saying I should be in my father's house doing my father's work. That's what I shouldn't I just be doing that. Now, remember, again, that it was at the age of 13 that a that a boy became a man. And that's when he began to take over his father's business. That was very normal in, at the time. Jesus, though I'm sure for the next 18 years, he was a carpenter and, and took over his earthly father's business. He was saying, that's really not why I'm here. I'm not here to be a carpenter. I'm here to do my father's business. And his father's business was to ask questions of teachers. <laughs> that's just amazing. Jesus, you're not even teaching. Yeah, but I'm about my father's business. I'm doing my father's work. I'm in my father's house. I'm about to turn 13. This is what's coming, Mary. I'm here for a greater purpose. I'm not just your son. I'm about my father's business. Verse 15, they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. I, I don't blame them. <laughs> I don't fully understand it myself. And they understood not the saying that he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. What are you talking about? He was subject to them? He obeyed his parents? <laughs> he's God. <laughs> yes, but he's also humiliating. He's humbling himself and being the perfect man. Only God could do that. He was subject, but his mother kept all these sayings in his heart. Here, uh, Luke is explaining that here's how I know this. Mary told me. Mary kept it in her memory, in her heart. I, I wonder how Mary must have experienced the some of these statements. It says, all they that heard him were wondering. It says this in verse 47, they that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. I wonder if when Mary comes in and says, Jesus, come on, I'm under here. I mean, we're supposed to, that as they're leaving, people are saying, is that your son? Oh my goodness. I can't believe what he's been saying for the last three days. It's just, I mean, he, he knows more about the, about the, the law that the, than the people he's asking questions about the law. I mean, this is, so understanding that this is all Mary's account of what's taking place is just mind-blowing. And then in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom, meaning that even at that time, he had limited his own wisdom. 
but he allowed himself to increase it. What happens for the next 18 years, from the age of 12 to the age of 30? Well, Jesus allowed himself to increase in wisdom. He allowed himself to deal with the struggles that every human being has to deal with. He allowed himself to have to face the hardships that cause other people to sin, and yet he did it without sin. How do I know that he did it without sin? Well, the Bible says it many times, but look at Luke chapter 3, at the baptism of Christ. The Father shows up. He says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased in him. The last 30 years, perfect. I'm well pleased. There's nothing at all that I can say that is displeasing. Now, God can be pleased with us only because we stand in the righteous record of Christ. But without the righteous record of Christ, without the uh, uh, the altering of our actual condition, God could never say about me, Josh, I am well pleased, because I am a dirty, rotten, depraved sinner. And so are we all. <laughs> I saw you all looking at me like I was worse than you, so. Uh, aren't we all, right? Um, I am a sinner. I, God can't say that. He can say that only because I I stand by faith in the righteous record of Christ, but without the righteous record of Christ, that could never be said about any man, but yet when Jesus was baptized, it is said of him, I am well pleased. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, meaning he was also, he was, he was treating God perfectly and he was treating man perfectly. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, and I think that when we see who Jesus is, how, how glorious and how perfect this is, then I think it should inspire us to examine his life more closely and say, how can I be more like Jesus? That's what the word Christian means anyway. People who are like Christ, those little Christians, those little Christ-like people, that's what they were called in Antioch, the first place where where Christians were called Christians, believers were called Christians because they were going around talking about Christ all the time, saying they wanted to be like him. And I think when we see just how wonderful Christ is, it causes us to want to be a little bit more like him. And we can start where he started, or at least where Luke tells us um, the, the, the beginning that Luke gives us, and that is at the, at the, on our knees, asking questions and studying the Word of God. That's where every true Christian begins his journey of following Christ with his life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, such a wonderful thing to know the immense love that you have for us, that you would send your son not only to die, of course, I can't imagine that, but just to, to live a life for 33 years in the humble state of a lowly human being, submitting to his parents and, and studying the word of God like a, like a human has to study it. Not only purchasing for us salvation, but leaving for us an example that we should follow in, in his steps. I'm overwhelmed this evening about the love that would cause you to Send your son in such a way to shed his own blood for my sins. To give me his righteousness, that I could stand in that righteousness.